Today, actually, we're starting a new um, sermon series, and uh, we're calling it Uncomfortable. And really what we're doing in this sermon series is we're going to be looking at some of those, those sayings of Jesus that make us kind of uncomfortable. Now, my guess is that all of us have been around people before who say things that make us uncomfortable. You can think about that friend. You can think maybe about your mom. You can think about your great aunt. I got stories about my, my great aunt, interestingly. I'll save them for a, another week. But one of the people in my life that used to say things that made me feel uncomfortable was my favorite uncle, who I've mentioned many times. His name was Uncle Jerry. And he was a pilot in World War II. He was, you know, kind of an interesting guy, had an interesting story, played football in college. It was just a lot of fun. And so, you know, as a teenager, I'd go visit him sometimes at his house in Atlanta. And I remember, you know, we'd go out to a restaurant or whatever. And so I'd be sitting there with him and the waitress would come up. And as soon as the waitress would come up, he'd go, hey, BP, go ahead and tell her what you said about her. And as a 14-year-old, I would just be like, uh, what? You know, anyway, he's totally, you know, totally mortified, you know, made me feel very uncomfortable. That's kind of the whole point here. Anyway, and then, uh, you know, as I got older, he would come visit me at college sometimes, and he would take a, you know, maybe a group of my friends out to dinner or lunch or something like that. I remember one time introducing him to a friend of mine, and I remember he said to her, hey, I don't know why Brian said that. You look totally normal to me. And I was like, ah, whatever, you know. <clears throat> I, by the way, I have recycled all these jokes and made them my own. So anyway, once we were at a wedding, and I think it might have been my sister's wedding, which would have been my junior year of college, and we were down in Charleston, South Carolina, and we were standing at sort of a reception line, and, you know, some very prim and proper southern lady from Charleston, South Carolina, standing behind uh, my Uncle Jerry and me, um, she said to us, she said, wasn't that just such a beautiful ceremony? And uh, my uncle turned to her and goes, yeah, it's just too bad it'll never last. And he turned around and just said nothing. And I was like, oh my word, I can't believe you said that. Anyway, point is, we are in the middle of a sermon series. We're calling it Uncomfortable because we're looking at a lot of those things that Jesus said that kind of make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. In fact, today we're going to be looking at one of the things that I remember reading Jesus saying and just sort of making me feel like, oh my word, what in the world? And it's where Jesus tells Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. You're like, how did that make its way? In the scripture. Now, we're going to begin with a little video clip here in just a second, but before we do that, I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to pray. Father, thanks very much for drawing these people into this room this morning. Father, we believe that scripture actually teaches that we are not in this place by accident this morning, but rather we are here in this theater on this particular morning because you have drawn us into this place, Father. We believe that there's something you have to communicate to us through your Holy Spirit, through somebody that we have a conversation with, through some of the music, through some of the scripture, Father, whatever it is, uh, as Jeff mentioned earlier, Father, I pray that no one would be able to leave this place this morning without having had an encounter with you, the living God. Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Point is, uh, we all face uh, temptations of various kinds. I think we have to admit that we're prone to any number of different temptations. Some of us are tempted in very small ways, like the temptation to break our New Year's resolution about food consumption or maybe exercise. Others of us are tempted to, you know, lie in order to protect ourselves, or maybe we lie on a resume in order to get a job that we really want. Those are common temptations. I've heard that it's not uncommon uh, for men to lie on their dating profile about how, they, how tall they are, right? Because a lot of women will automatically sort of cross people off the list who are less than six feet tall. Thank goodness I met my wife 30 some odd years ago and didn't have to deal with that. I would have not done well. We might be tempted to gossip about someone else in order to gain 
some sort of relational con- uh, connection or capital with another person. That's a temptation for some of us. Some people face extremely self-destructive temptations towards alcohol or drugs or pornography where the temptation is so severe that not giving in almost feels like an impossibility. It just feels like it's not even possible. One of my favorite uh, quotes on temptation is from Mere Christianity. I'm going to read it. It'll be up on the screen. It says this, C.S. Lewis writes, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out how the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Often, temptation comes from within us, right? We kind of understand that intuitively. We're trying to eat healthy, but after a really long, stressful day at work or in school, when we go to dinner, getting a Coke and some fries uh, and a burger sounds much better than getting the salad with water, right? To skimp there around our diet is a massive temptation. It's not the restaurant's fault or the dining hall's fault. It's not your friend's fault. The source of temptation is just our own flesh. That's just true sometimes. Sometimes temptation is actually external to us, and it's nefarious. The old marketing mantra you've probably heard before is sex sells. Often companies will create ads that use sexually tempting material to get clicks online. Those companies do not care about you at all. In fact, they often profit precisely upon your frailty, your uh, temptation, your willingness or weakness around temptation. At other times, temptation can be external, but instead of coming, at, uh, coming from somebody who is evil, it can actually come sometimes from a friend or from a loved one. That's what we see in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. I'm going to read those very quickly. It says this, and this is Jesus talking to his disciples. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, before we jump into this very uncomfortable statement by Jesus, this very uncomfortable interaction between Peter and Jesus, let's look at the surrounding context. And what we see in the surrounding context is it's really about Jesus' identity. In seminary, um, most students will take a class called hermeneutics. That's a big fancy word. What it simply is, is it means this uh, sort of training in how to read and interpret scripture. And since the Bible is comprised of any number of different types of literature, uh, poetry, history, didactic literature, just to name a few, and since some of the Bible, books in the Bible are as many as 4,500 years old, it's really important to train someone in how to read all those various genres of literature. Oftentimes, heretical teaching and false teaching actually arises out of a failure of hermeneutics. So it's well-intentioned people, but they just don't quite know how to interpret Scripture. One hermeneutical principle that will inevitably be taught 
in those classes is the following principle, and it's that context is part of text. Context is part of text. In other words, when you look at those verses 31 through 33, you have to see what precedes them and what follows them. Here's an example. If during a debate competition at Harvard, uh, one team says to another, we are going to destroy you. We understand intuitively that they're speaking metaphorically, right? You've got to put that in context. It's totally different, however, if Vladimir Putin says that to a neighboring European country, right? We understand that might be more serious. So one aspect of context around Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, is what immediately precedes and follows it. I mentioned that a minute ago. And what precedes our passage of Peter's failure is a story of Peter's success. That's what happens right before. In verses 27 through 30, Jesus takes the disciples on a 25-mile hike to Caesarea Philippi. This is a city at the foot of Mount Hermon, which was to the north of the Sea of Galilee. At some point on the journey, Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Again, he's, he's sort of asking them, who do, who do people say that my identity is? They answer in verse 28, where we read, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. In other words, they're saying, here's some of the, 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 the sort of the people that they think you might be. Here's some of the guesses they make around your identity. And by this point in Jesus' ministry, he had already healed people. He had cast out demons. He'd been challenging the religious power structures. And as a result, large crowds of people were following him. And some hoped to be healed. Some just wanted to see the show. But clearly there was a buzz about who Jesus was. People were talking about his identity. Some people thought he was a resurrected John the Baptist. Others thought he was the reincarnation of Elijah. Still others argued that he was one of the prophets who had returned. But then what's interesting is after Jesus asks this question to the disciples and he gets their answer, he, uh, sorry, to the, the people, he turns that same question and he says, well, who do you say that I am, right? If that's what they say or who they say I am, who do you say I am? And essentially, we're not told how long Peter waits to answer Jesus' question to the larger group of disciples, but I think it's actually fair to think that maybe Peter responded like an overly eager student in class who raised his hand and really wanted to answer the question. We read in the second half of verse 29, it says this, Peter answered him, you are the Christ, you are the Christ. And we know from Matthew 16, which also records this interaction, we know there that Jesus says that Peter is right. Specifically, Jesus says this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So two quick uh, takeaways from this interaction. First, Peter gets it right, at least in part. He doesn't yet know all about who Jesus is. We see that on uh, the morning of Jesus' resurrection. But he at least knows that Jesus is indeed the Christ, or literally the anointed one. In ancient Israel, when someone was given a position of authority, like maybe a king, oil was poured onto their head to signify their being set apart for God's service. Kings, priests, prophets were all anointed in that way. Anointing was a symbolic act to indicate God's choice of them for a particular role, a particular purpose. The Bible records Jesus being anointed with oil on two separate occasions by two different anonymous women. But perhaps the most significant anointing of Jesus came at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended upon him and his heavenly Father spoke over him saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, I would love to dig into that interaction 
that proclamation, that anointing at length, but suffice it to say that in the midst of Jesus' upcoming trials, he was getting ready to go into the wilderness, God the Father knew that his son would need to remember exactly who he was, the beloved son. We needed to be reminded of that in the midst of our temptations too, by the way. We need to remember who we are, God's adopted children, that he loves us, that he's for us. Regardless of this interaction, Peter gets it right. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He is the Christ. That's one takeaway. The second takeaway from this interaction is this, that Peter's knowledge of who Jesus was was not the product of Peter's logic. It wasn't the product of Peter's exhaustive knowledge of Scripture, but rather Peter's awareness of Jesus' identity was a gift from God. Take a look again at what Jesus said when Peter got it right. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. We see this theme over and over again in Scripture. Jesus tells Nicodemus that being born again is due to the Holy Spirit's will. If you remember, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is like a wind that blows where and when it will. In the story of Paul's conversion, Paul isn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus is clearly looking for him. That same thing is true with Jacob in the Old Testament. It's true with Levi in the New Testament, and it's true for us as well. Our knowledge of who Jesus is is ultimately a gift from God. An appropriate response from us should be humility. Remember what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not this is not of your own doing it is the gift of god right so have some humility remembering that our awareness of who jesus is is a gift from god the father at this point let's jump into the second point so if the first point was about jesus identity and peter got that right the second point is about jesus mission which peter got wrong look, look at verses 31 through i believe 33 says this, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get thee behind me or get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If you remember Jesus, again, he's taking the disciples on this 25-mile walk from the Sea of Galilee northward to a town called Caesarea Philippi, which is at the, mount, uh, the foot of Mount Hermon. All that's recorded for us about this trip is this interaction about Jesus' identity. That's what we get. He is the Messiah, but it's also about his mission. And here we read that Jesus came to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and then to rise again. Mark records in verse 32 that Jesus said this plainly. It's interesting that Mark makes a point about this. He draws attention to the fact that Jesus spoke plainly. We know that Jesus often spoke in parables, and frequently those stories were intended to hide things from certain people and then reveal them to others, but not here. He was speaking plainly. He wasn't seeking to hide anything. At other times, Jesus spoke like that sort of good college professor who intentionally uses cognitive dissonance so that people have to really work through and process what they're saying. And here, however, Jesus wasn't doing that. He was just direct. I think Mark makes this point about Jesus speaking plainly because it wasn't all that often that Jesus speaks so frankly, and yet here he does. Why? What Jesus is speaking plainly about is his mission. We see it right there in verse 31. 
Again, we'll read it. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In other words, Jesus is saying, that's my mission. That's what I came to do. The particulars of this mission were exactly the focal point of Satan's temptation at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Essentially there, Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness after he's been starving in the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus is at his weakest, and Satan essentially says something like this. He says, hey, you and I both know that there's another way. You and I both know that there's an easier path. There's a way that doesn't involve suffering. There's a way that doesn't involve betrayal. There's another way that doesn't involve rejection. There's another way that doesn't involve the cross. I'll give you everything you want if you just fill in the blank. And Jesus, of course, in the midst of that temptation, he stayed strong. He remained faithful to his father's plan, even though Jesus knew remaining faithful would cost him dearly. The particulars of Jesus' mission were also the thing that he wrestled with on the night of his arrest on the Mount of Olives. If you remember, Jesus went to pray And when he went to pray, he invited Peter, James, and John to come with him. In Luke chapter 22, we read the following uh, of that account. It says this, beginning in verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's part of the theme here. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I think it's safe to say that Jesus' greatest trial was remaining faithful to his father's plan. I think that was always Jesus' greatest temptation. His struggle in the wilderness and his struggle in the garden were both totally and completely real. In fact, just after Jesus prays for another way out, we read this, verse 43 of that same passage says, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. His father's answer to Jesus' prayer wasn't to remove Jesus from the trial, but was rather to strengthen him in it. Let me pause here for a moment and just make a point. Usually, not always, but usually that's God's answer to us as well. God could have snapped his fingers and he could have freed Joseph from slavery in Potiphar's house, but he didn't. Instead, we read throughout that narrative that the Lord was with Joseph. God had a plan that actually required Joseph's suffering. Similarly, God could have rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, but he didn't, but he was with them. Listen to this passage from Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. God didn't remove them from the furnace. Instead, he was with them in it. God could have made Elijah's path and his mission easier, but instead God appeared to Elijah three different times, strengthening him each time with food, with water, with encouragement, with conversation. The final time we read this, he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah had run away. He was hiding out. He was giving up. 
Verse 11, and he, that is God, said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, the still small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. In each of these instances, God had a plan that involved suffering. There was going to be a cost. And yet not once did God change his mission. Not once did he remove the suffering, but each time he was with them in it. Three years ago, I believe that God gave me a mission to reveal and represent him to my domain as I walked through cancer. For about a month, we didn't know whether the cancer had spread to other parts of my body. I didn't know if I was on the front end of a long battle of cancer that involved chemotherapy or radiation, maybe eventual death. During that time, there was a lot of praying, as you might imagine. There was a lot of worry. In particular, I worried about what might happen to my children. But more than anything, during that time, I distinctly felt God's presence with me in it. I wouldn't choose to go through cancer uh, ever again if I had that choice to make, but I also wouldn't change a thing about what happened to me. That experience was actually a wonderful gift. Now, again, God won't necessarily change our path or our mission, but he does promise to be with us in it. Back to the story. Jesus tells Peter and the rest of his disciples plainly that he was the Messiah and that his mission was to suffer, to be rejected, and to be killed. When he said this, we are told the following, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan. I keep adding the thee. The, the King James Version resonates in my memory. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. First of all, we read that Peter took Jesus aside. I think he's trying to act honorably here. That's a good management or parenting principle, by the way. When possible, don't rebuke people publicly. Do it in private. We then read that Peter began to rebuke Jesus. We're not told explicitly, but it's very likely that the content of Peter's rebuke had to do with his vision of what the Messiah's mission should be. Most Jews in that time would have expected the Messiah to arrive as a conquering king. They would have expected this Messiah to overthrow the Roman government and to rule over Israel. No one, however, was expecting a Messiah whose mission was to suffer and die as a sacrificial lamb in order to conquer sin and death. That's not what anybody <laughs> was thinking. At this point, we read that Jesus turned and seeing his disciples, it tells us, he rebuked Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, I'm not sure about you, but when I read Jesus' response, I do feel uncomfortable. Get thee behind me is a pretty stern rebuke. Why in the world did Jesus reply in such strong language? I think there may be two reasons. First, I think we have a clue in the fact that Jesus turned and saw the other disciples listening in. I think that what's at stake was a very clear understanding of what Jesus' mission was for them and for the world. Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Roman government. He came to overthrow something far more powerful, sin and death. Jesus didn't come to be some great moral teacher. He came to be a great savior, the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. 
Why did Jesus respond so strongly? Clearly, Jesus needed Peter and the other disciples to know that this was his mission. The second reason harkens back to what we talked about a bit earlier. Satan's temptation to Jesus in the wilderness was aimed precisely at the heart of Jesus' mission. Surely the temptation was great for Jesus to choose an easier path. Surely the temptation to avoid the cross was ever present. Jesus didn't want to suffer and die any more than you or I do. And Peter, by trying to convince Jesus to take another path, was echoing the voice of the evil one when what Jesus needed most was to hear the voice of his heavenly father.